Let's, um, let's have a look at the scripture together then. Uh, so we're in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 to 21. It'd be good if you had your Bibles with you as well, just to kind of keep that open, the passage, because we'll, um, we'll um, uh, look, look at a few other passages as well briefly. Um, okay, I'll read from verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Father, we ask now as we look at this Scripture, as we look at this amazing picture of the future city, that you would lift us in the Spirit as well, that we might see the glory of the world to come. Please open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, by the power of your Spirit now, that we might see what is to come. Amen. Now, uh, we've learnt uh, that this life is an apprenticeship on the way to heaven, so we should use our time wisely. We've, we've learnt that we should ignore John Lennon and listen to Jesus and think about what is to come. And we've learnt how uh, this future world will be a transformed physical world where heaven and earth are merged. And, and best of all, God will be amongst us. He will be with us and we will be united to him forever. But of course, one of the things that kind of slightly irritates Christians when they start thinking about heaven is that we're not given every detail that we would like to have. It would be surely better if God could have just kind of given us a much clearer picture of what is coming. After all, other religions go into loads of famous details about um, uh, the future life. So we have the virgins of Islam or or perhaps most attractively, we get the people who've had um, after-death 
uh, experiences and have gone to heaven. And they go on and tell Oprah and, um, and write a book and, and, um, and they become famous. Um, uh, one of them uh, became very famous. He, um, he was a pastor's son. He wrote a book called Heaven Is For Real. His name is Todd Burpo. Oh, his father's called Todd Burpo. And he's a pastor of uh, Crossroads Wesleyan Church in Nebraska. And his son Colton had a, had a burst appendix. And apparently he visited heaven. You know, he, was, he, was, he died. Uh, and uh, and uh, he, he was welcomed into uh, the world to come. And he wrote a book uh, in 2010 which sold 8 million copies and there was even a film made people love this kind of stuff because they want details sadly there's one example a guy called Alex Malarkey who co-wrote a book with his, with his dad Kevin about his experiences in heaven when he was in a car accident uh, and, that, and later he just admitted that he'd made it all up because he liked getting the attention Now the good news for us, actually, in the middle of all of this, is that we don't need to worry about all of that, because the Bible is sufficient. And we might not get the details that we would like to have, but we don't need to worry about those details because God doesn't think that we need to know them, because the Bible is sufficient. You don't have to fill in the blanks. The blanks are divinely ordained. And so we should be very careful that we don't get excited about other people's stories um, or films that come out. But rather we should base our thinking about heaven on what God has told us in the scripture. It's interesting, isn't it? In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how he was called up into heaven. Do you remember that? It's a famous passage, the thorn in the flesh. And he's called up into heaven and he says he sees things and hears things. But he doesn't tell us anything. He doesn't describe it at all. What God has done is to give us what is necessary. And here in Revelation 21, we do get some pictures. And so we can, we can think about these pictures that God has given us. And, and what, one of the interesting things as you go through these chapters is that you realise that heaven is in a sense indescribable. It is beyond our ability to describe it. Because here we get descriptions like a city with roads made of transparent glass, uh, transparent gold. What is transparent gold? That isn't gold, is it? It doesn't make any sense. It's poetry. We're not meant to read everything literally. There are loads of pictures and poetry here. And this goes all the way through the book of Revelation. So in the... um, the initial vision of Jesus at the beginning of the book of Revelation, you, you've got a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Now, we're supposed to think that there's a big sword in Jesus' mouth. Of course not. It's poetry, isn't it? And if we just understood that, some of the, way, some of the mistakes people make in reading the book of Revelation would be, uh, would be mitigated considerably. So this isn't a systematic unpicking of what heaven is like. It is poetry. And, and, and so we, we read here of the New Jerusalem, and the New Jerusalem is a picture of heaven, and it's actually a picture of God's people in heaven. It is both at the same time. The boundaries are blurred. In a sense, this passage is breathless. It's, um, it, it's a bit like a child telling you excitedly about something amazing that they've done. And everything gets mixed up, and everything runs into uh, one another, and it overlaps and repeats. But the main thing we can get here as we go through this passage is that God is providing us a home, a city, the new Jerusalem. And our future home is God's city, 
And that city is our home with God. Now, I heard another preacher talk uh, uh, about this idea of home, and he used a really good analogy, which I'm going to nick. And he talks about how often we think of heaven as a second home. A second home. You know, it's a nice place. It's far away. It's somewhere to escape to. It's nice to have. It's great to, it's, it's, it's great to visit it. But your second home is not your real home. It's, it's not what you really invest in. It's not, what, it's not what you put first, what you prioritize. It's not where you really live. It's somewhere you go to visit. And often we think about heaven like that. And that is one of the reasons why we struggle to really grasp hold of heaven. Because we think that our real home is here. It's nice to have heaven to look forward to. But the real stuff is going on here and now. But that is not what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying that heaven is a nice second home, a kind of added luxury. What it is saying is that heaven is our real home. It is where we really belong. And here and now, we are aliens and strangers and exiles. We are on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean, spiritually speaking. On our way to somewhere else. We are immigrants in the camp in Calais. We are waiting to get somewhere else. And so, as God's people, we are not at home in this world. John Calvin said this, he said, if heaven is our homeland, what else is earth but our place of exile? And this is one of the big spiritual hindrances that we face, that we are, build, we are busy building our homes here, when we should actually be looking forward to our future home in heaven. See, all, all the way through the book of Revelation, God's people are a persecuted people. They are attacked, they are killed, they are beheaded. They are people who are homeless, who are looking for a home. And here in chapter 21, they finally come home. They come home. And in verse 9, we get a picture of the new heavenly city coming to earth. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven plagues said, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And we see the holy city in verse 10 coming down. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Um, I don't know when you last moved house, but you know that moving house is a stressful thing, isn't it? You've got to pack everything, you've got to label everything, you've got to get a car and a van to move your stuff, you know your glasses are going to get smashed. But here we see God not just moving some of his stuff, packing some of his boxes together. He's moving here a whole city. It's stressful moving house, but I've never tried to move a whole city with me. I've never tried to move London with me, but God is bringing the new Jerusalem out of heaven, to earth, for us. And so we're going to spend um, a bit of time looking at this new home now. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at a holy bride, verses 9 to 11. A haven uh, for God's people. And a huge, beautiful city. So let's look at the holy bride, verses 9 to 11. I'll read these verses. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like, was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
this is a, a little bit confusing because you've got a city, but the city is called the Bride of the Lamb. What's that all about? I mean, there's a lot of pictures jumbled up here. There's loads of metaphors being mixed together. It's, it's, um, it's, a, li- it's a little bit complicated, isn't it? Jerusalem, the Bride of the Lamb. Well, let, 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 let's unpick this. Firstly, you've got the Lamb. The Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, that's the title for him, the main title for him, all the way through the book of Revelation. It comes 33 times. Jesus is the sacrifice that sets us free to serve God. So, you, so you, you've, you've got the Lamb. Then you've got the city. And, and, and as I've just said, this is a picture both of heaven itself and God's people in heaven. And then you've got the bride. That's a picture of God's people. And so what we've been told here is the coming of this city is like a heavenly wedding. The idea of weddings and brides goes all the way through the Bible. God is the groom and his people are the bride or, or his wife. And actually you get this idea of the city wife. These two pictures coming together a few times in the Bible. So in Isaiah 62 and Ezekiel 16, you get these, you get these um, pictures being brought together because God's people have wandered off from him. And God says, look, I'm going to welcome you back and bring you back as my bride. You've been an unfaithful, adulterous woman, but I'm going to bring you back as my bride. And so here in chapter 21, it's picking up on this idea. And uh, John is in the spirit. He's called up into the heavenly council. He's he's seen the things um, of of heaven. And and he's, he's saying that this new city is coming down to earth. And he's... He's um, alluding back to chapter 17 uh, in the book of Revelation. Because in, the book of, uh, in chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, you get the picture of, uh, of Babylon. You've got these two cities, Jerusalem in chapters 21 to 22, and Babylon in chapters 16 to 19. Now, Babylon was originally the capital of the Babylonian Empire. And they were an empire that, that oppressed the Israelites in the Old Testament. But here in the book of Revelation, Babylon is no longer a literal city. It is a picture, a metaphor of God's spiritual enemies. Babylon sums up everything that is opposed to God. It is the anti-God city. It represents a fallen world that hates God. And in chapter 17, we get a description of Babylon. Turn back with me to chapter 17, will you? Verses 3 to 5. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Okay, class, what is Babylon? How is Babylon described here? What is she in essence? It's going, not good, it's not good, definitely, definitely not positive. What picture? Sorry? The mother of harlots. The mother of harlots, okay, so, so what is she then? A prostitute. 
a prostitute. So you've got Babylon, the the spiritual prostitute, and you've got Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. Now what happens um, in chapters 18 to 20 of Revelation is that Babylon is judged, overthrown, and destroyed. And you get this terrible destruction and lament as she is overthrown. And here in chapter 21, we get the new Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. So you can see there's a, there's a comparison going on here. Babylon, Jerusalem. And in fact, the same angel who appeared in chapter 17, verse 1, appears in chapter 20, verse 9. Uh, uh, sorry, in chapter 21, verse 9, to speak of the new Jerusalem. In chapter 17, Babylon is called the spiritual prostitute of the beast. And here we have the bride of the Lamb. And you and I, see, we were once part of Babylon, weren't we? We once belonged to Babylon. We were part of the, the spiritual prostitution of Babylon. And we followed the beast. But here we have Jesus as our bridegroom who comes after us when we were unfaithful and when we didn't love him. And so we've been told here that, that heaven will be a heavenly marriage. It will be a loving marriage. It will be a world where Jesus' love and delight is poured out on us, his people, forever and ever. Now, most men want to marry a woman who loves them. But Jesus married us and came for us when we were his enemies. See, as a guy, if you want to marry a woman, what you need to do is you need to sort out your personal hygiene issues first. And then you have to propose. And then you buy a ring. And you, you know, or you'll get a ring and then propose, perhaps. Uh, and, then, and, and then you kind of organise the wedding. But what did Jesus have to do in order to marry his wife? Well, he had to do a lot more than that, didn't he? He had to sacrifice himself and die to marry this woman. And he, and he did this for a woman who hated him. He had to become a sacrifice for her. He didn't give her a ring as his proposal. He gave her his blood. And this, this husband had to die in humiliation in order to make his wedding day happen. I don't know what you had to do to make your wedding day happen. Thankfully, you didn't have to die in humiliation. So, when you first hear this, this, this little line, the bride of the lamb, it sounds a bit strange, but actually when you start to think about it, it is amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. See, what this is telling us is that we are heading towards a world of love. Let's stop moan and grumble as if we're unloved and uncared for and all alone. We're not. Be amazed by his love for you. The lamb has given his blood for you. He's gi- and he's given his blood for you to make you holy and to make you beautiful. Verses 10 and 11. We're told uh, throughout the book, these, these chapters that nothing impure can enter this city. And um, what uh, the lamb does is he gives us fine linen, we're told, in these chapters. He's given us fine linen to wear holiness. This city bride is a holy bride. Jesus hasn't died for us to leave us in our spiritual muck. He hasn't left us in our grubbiness. But the new Jerusalem will be a holy place. It won't be an echo of London with people shouting at at each other and shoving one another on the tube with muggings in the street. While I've been at St. John's, I've almost had to have 999 on a kind of speed dial on my phone. And in fact, uh, in a few weeks' time, I'm a witness on, uh, in a case of assault on our estate. But there won't be any courts in, in heaven. There won't be any fighting. There won't be any prisons. 
And the sin battles that you face today will be over. And you will find that every command of God becomes a promise in your life. You will be holy. You will actually be the very things you're commanded to be. You will look like Jesus. You will be instinctively holy. You will want all the right things. See, heaven will be a place of holiness and a place of purity and a place of love. And so we see here the lamb setting up his home with his bride. A home full of love. A home full of holiness. Secondly, verses 12 to 14, we see that this new city will be a haven for God's people. I'll read verses 12 to 14. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three to the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. When I was a student, I lived for a year in Spain and um, it was a lonely year in some ways. I was a foreigner in a different language I didn't really speak very well and I lived in a different culture. And I remember coming back to the UK at the end of the year, how great that felt. You know, I, could think, I could eat pasties now, and there's breakfast TV, and I could understand what people were saying. And maybe you've had an experience like that in a small way or a big way. Coming home is a great thing. Now, and, and I had that experience just coming home to England. But just think what it would be like to come home to the haven we see here. See, what's this city like? Well, we're told its walls are incredibly thick. Apparently, um, the, th- the thickness is 65 meters. It's very, very high. In other words, it's super safe. It can't be breached. It can't be overcome. It, it can't be um, beaten in battle. Of course, this, um, this people, they have been persecuted and hunted down by Babylon, but now they are safe. They've come to God's haven. And, uh, and this city will belong to us, and we will belong to it. Back in uh, chapter 3, Jesus says that uh, he will write on us the name of his God and the name of the city of his God. The name of the city is written on us. We belong to it. We're citizens of this city, even while we live in London. You know, my, um, my wife is Norwegian, and uh, she doesn't have a British passport. She only has a Norwegian passport. But she's allowed... Uh, to, to live uh, in the UK, so she lives in the UK, but her home is somewhere else. She's a resident in the UK, but she doesn't fully belong here. And that is what you and I are like. You see, we live here, but our passport is actually somewhere else. Our passport is Jerusalem, Jerusalem's passport. And the name of that city is written on us in invisible ink. We live on earth in London, but we don't belong to it. Now, when you look at at the description of the city, you can't miss the number 12. It comes up again and again. You've got 12 gates, you've got 12 angels, you've got 12 foundations. Now, the number 12 here is not written because it's God's kind of lucky number. But the number 12 here is a picture of completeness. It refers to a complete set. And the point here is, is that the whole of God's people are being represented We won't be alone in heaven. It won't just be me, Jesus, and my guitar, my worship CDs. But we'll be part of one huge community that is gathered together. In verse 12, we read of the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, the Old Testament people of God will be there. In verse 14, we read of the 12 apostles. In other words, the New Testament people of God will be there. 
So you'll have Abraham, Miriam and David, the Old Testament people of God. And you'll have Peter, James, Martha and Mary, the New Testament people of God. There is one people and one plan. There's not one special plan for Israel and another special plan for the Gentiles. But God's people will be one. United in their new home. And why a city? Why a city? That's because God loves people. And he loves community. It's human beings who bear his image. You know, you, in, in, um, in London, you are surrounded by beauty. Lots and lots of beauty. You may not always instinctively feel that. But you are because you are surrounded by lots of people who are made in the image of God. And human beings made in the, in the image of God are the summit of God's creation. God does not most value um, mountains and sunsets and plants. He values them, they're created, he's made them. But the sum of his creation is not those things. It is human beings made in his image. And in London you are surrounded by an intensity of beauty that is out of this world. And so God's plan for the future is to gather all these images of him together in one place. That they might reflect him. It will be one unified people. Now, if heaven will be like that, if it will be one unified people all singing and living together. We should fight for that, shouldn't we? In a world where denominations are a thing of the past, there won't be any Anglicans in heaven, no Pentecostals, no Baptists either. They'll just be God's people. We should fight for that unity. And it's good to think, on, it's good to think about that on a personal level. See, it's always good to think about the, you know, the irritating believer who you know, or the brother in Christ, who has some funny spiritual ideas, or the sister in Christ, who's a, who's a bit of a gossip, that person will be with you in heaven forever. John Newton, the, uh, the, the guy who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, he was a famous uh, writer of letters back in the 1700s, and he wrote a famous letter to a young man, an, an earnest young man, who was getting, in, getting into lots of the, theological debates and discussions at the time. And he wants to kind of calm him down a little bit. He wants to calm down this strong-willed man. And he tells this young man, remember, as you talk to your opponents, remember this. He says, look, in a little while you will meet him in heaven. And your opponent will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his theological errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. It's not saying don't have any debates. It's not saying don't don't, don't pretend you you, you don't have any disagreements. But this is a brother, and you'll be happy with your brother and sister in heaven forever. They'll be with us. The person who irritates you now, they're going to be with you forever. So get used to it. They may even be your neighbour. Who knows? And they will be dearer to you than your closest relative is... Now, the 12, 12, 12 reminds us that no one will be missing. It will be a complete set. Not one of God's people will be left outside. Not one of God's people will be excluded. So let's prepare for that. And let's promote the unity of the church and unity between churches. So we see a haven for God's people. Lastly, we see that the New Jerusalem is a huge, beautiful city. A huge, beautiful city. I'll read from verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. 
He measured its walls, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the, f- the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold, like transparent glass. So here we get a very long description of this city. And it's, it, it's basically a bit more like being on a building site, isn't it, than, uh, than, um, uh, than anything else. Now one of the guys in our church works as an engineer on Battersea Power Station. And um, he got out his um, computer recently and showed me a 3, 3D model of how Battersea Power Station is being rebuilt. And he zoomed in and zoomed out. It's, it was very impressive, actually. I didn't really understand much, but it was very impressive. <laughs> but the plans here, they're not like that, are they? They're not, they're not engineering plans. Remember, this is the world of picture language and symbols. It's, it's not a, a computer model for us. The point here is that this will be one huge city with awesome beauty. It has massive dimensions. It's 12,000 stadia, backwards, forwards, upwards. In other words, it's perfectly symmetrical and unbelievably big. Now, some people have worked out how big this actually is. Um, Apparently, it's 40 times bigger than the UK, 15,000 times bigger than London, and goes up 1,400 miles in the air. Remember, it's poetry, but... It's, it's telling us something, isn't it? The new Jerusalem is going to take over the world. It's always been God's plan to fill and subdue the earth, and he will do that with the new Jerusalem. You know, multinational companies build massive skyscrapers in London, don't they? And they do that to show off their wealth and their power and their influence, to show how big they are, how awesome they are. So the Shard is 310 metres, which is three times higher than St. Paul's Cathedral. And you know what a city worships, by uh, the biggest buildings in the city. So what does the, you know, the skyline of London tell us about what we worship as a city? Well, we can see here that the New Jerusalem goes up into outer space. If you want to go up to the restaurant at the top, you're going to have to have a spacesuit. Babylon, on the other hand, is called the Great City and sat, and, and sat apparently on the seven hills, chapter 17, verse 9. But Jerusalem... Is, this, is the size of a big country and sits on a great high mountain, verse 10. In Ezekiel 40 to 48, you get this, this vision of a new temple and, um, and how God is, is going to restore the temple of Israel. And, and, and a lot of the language here echoes back or alludes back to those chapters in Ezekiel. And the point here is that this is awe-inspiringly massive. Don't be impressed by the skyscrapers of London but rather look to the skyline of the new Jerusalem. This city will fill the world. And we're told what what the city is made of. It's made of jasper, and it's a city of pure gold. Now, I don't know what your home is like. Uh, My house or my flat is part of our church building, and our church building has lots of problems. It's got a flat roof, and you have to keep redoing this flat roof because it leaks and material wears away. It's very annoying, isn't it? You buy a property or you have a property, and you have to spend like, so much effort and energy and money in just trying to keep this thing going. But you see, the new Jerusalem will not be like your, your house, your temporary house, but it will be made of astounding precious metal. Now, Eden 
had gold and precious metals uh, in it in, in Genesis 2.12. Um, and in, and in the inside of the tabernacle, it was all gold. Uh, when Solomon built the temple, it was filled with gold. But it is nothing like this. See, this new city is pure gold. Babylon was wealthy, but the foundations of this city are made with priceless jewels. And we get this long list of precious jewels. I don't know if you've heard of these jewels before. I hadn't. Chalcedony, I thought that was a region in France, not a jewel. And Beryl, that's the name of your, of, of, uh, your auntie, isn't it? And Jacinth, that's a, that's a very fast animal that lives in Africa. But, but these are all actually precious stones. They're priceless stones. The point is that the city is dazzlingly wealthy and beautiful. It's extortionately valuable, awesomely wonderful. Now, our city loves and chases beauty, doesn't it? And we get caught up in that. We want something amazing to look at. We can't help but chase beauty. We will chase beauty. You know, whether it's the opposite sex, or your own body, or places to visit, or even just kind of creating a perfect home to live in. You know, what are the weekend newspapers full of? They're full of images of beauty, aren't they? Beautiful things which we're chasing. Articles about things that we think are beautiful. What are the pictures on the billboards around the city? They're pictures of beautiful people, aren't they? I, um, I watched this um, Reggie Yates documentary on blokes and gyms and how these guys work so hard to get the perfect body in the gym. Uh, and it was sad, you know, the hours and hours, and you know, they use steroids. Uh, these very kind of toned guys would go to Turkey to get their fat sucked out. And, and, and all they, all they looked, looked for was this kind of perfect beautiful body that they could look at in the mirror but the reality is you see when we're when we're very preoccupied with our bodies it's very easy therefore to be very careless about our souls and people spend life savings on their houses don't they to create beautiful homes they want to almost it's almost like they're trying to create a new jerusalem in their own home and we get drawn into this the beautification of ourselves of ourselves the beautification of our homes the beautification of our own lives a couple of years ago, I went to the uh, Ideal Home Exhibition with my wife. And as we wandered around the hot Ideal Home Exhibition uh, up at Earl's Court, there's gadgets galore. And it kind of normalizes your greeds. And this lady got me to sit in this massage chair, which I'd never sat in before. And I sat in this massage chair. It cost £6,000. And I just felt this massage. I thought, this feels really good. I thought, well, maybe, you know, we could try and get one, one of these. I don't know how we'd buy it, but... 6,000 pounds, maybe that's worth it, you know, a massage chair. And you start, you know, it normalizes your greeds, doesn't it? And we start chasing these absurd things, and it is foolishness. Because actually, what we're really looking for is the new Jerusalem. And the reality is, if you get the very things that you are chasing, you'll get them, and you'll realize it wasn't what you were really chasing. You're looking for something else. You're looking for the huge city of awesome beauty. And that's really the longing behind every other longing in your life. That's the beauty you're really seeking. So don't get distracted. So easy to give your energy and your life to getting awe and beauty here and now and to get obsessed with what the culture is telling you is beautiful now. And all these things, they're quick ways to waste our life and waste our energy and waste our resources. Revelation 21 is telling us to chase the awesome beauty of the new Jerusalem. Set your sights on God's huge, beautiful city. So we get here some pictures of the future city, and uh, it's trying to help us get what is coming, uh, you know, what is, 
what, what God will give us in the future. It's trying to describe the indescribable. And this city, it will be our home forever. Now, to what extent it's, uh, this describes that, you know, exactly what it's like, I think, is it, very much up for grabs. It is po- poetic language. But these pictures, they're just, what they're trying to do is to get us to see the wonder of our future home with God. They're trying to draw us out of our, our little uh, worlds and get us to see the new world that is coming. And we see that this, this new home is not a second home that you pop into on holiday, but it is a permanent, lasting home. At the moment, we're on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean, spiritually speaking, looking for a home. And this is why Jesus came, to bring us entry into God's future home. John 14, 2, Jesus says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? You've got a a home already prepared for you in this great city. We were once part of Babylon, but now we've become part of the bride of the Lamb. We're waiting for our new home with him, our, our bridegroom. And we'll know this loving relationship with him forever. This is what you've been really looking for. This is what you need. We don't know all the details, but we know what we need to know. We're people on our, home, on our way home to God. Let's make sure we know where our real home is. Let's pray. Father, we, we are astounded at this beautiful new home that you have given us. A home that is so much better than anything that this world can give us. It's a home full of love. It's a wedding home with your son forever. It is a haven, a protection, a safe place. It is a place of awesome beauty. And we long to be there with you, Lord Jesus. And we pray, come. Come today. Come soon. Come and bring us home to yourself. And give us wisdom to see the, the emptiness of the things of this world. Give us wisdom to see the things that we're chasing here and now. And help us, Father, by the power of your Spirit, to be lifted up and to see the glory of the world to come. In the name of Christ. Amen. time now to do questions. I haven't had any slips of paper in, but if you find it easier to ask a question by jotting something down, um, feel free to just rip a little bit of um, spare paper out of your book um, and hand that in. But has anyone got any particular questions, insights, things that have really struck them over this week that they feel the Lord's drilling into their heart? Um, yeah, go on. Can I ask a similar question to what we were talking about at mm. So you, you said that you, in, in your previous talk, um, that you've renovated your kitchen mm. recently. Mm. Um, what? So, so there is something valuable about mm. about redoing mm. a home. Mm. Uh, I'm only picking up that example mm. as a, mm. as a, as a mm. thing. So, that how how do we live in this world now because of heaven? So yeah. you're talking about our desires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is. Absolutely. How do we do that? I think um, so. Um, it's maybe um, the difference between what is ultimately valuable and what is valuable. So in saying that the future world is ultimately valuable, we're not saying that the things of this world have no value. We're saying there are degrees of value. Um, 
you know, you're, if you're married or if you have children, there is a priority in your, in your family, your wife, your husband, or your children. They're more important um, than, than anything else. But you also have friends, I take it, and cousins, and, you know, and people also who you value. And so these, these other people, they have value in your life, but they don't have the priority and the ultimate value. And so there are things that you will do for your wife or your husband or for your kids that you wouldn't do for other people. Or if they, if, if, you know, they will always come first. Um, and that is right and proper and good. And, and so I think that's a good way of thinking about the future world, that actually this creation doesn't mean nothing. It's not insignificant. It's not unimportant. I mean, we've all got clothes on. We've had some food today, and we go out for nice walks, and we go on holidays, and all that's fine. The, the, um, and, and so it's right for us to recognize the value of those things. I think what we... What we should recognize, though, is because we are fallen people, we have a very strong temptation to turn those things into idols and to value them too much. And and Romans 1 tells us that. that, That's the human heart. The human heart takes God's good gifts and makes them ultimate. And we switch it around so that God becomes... God, rather than become the sun of my life, becomes a satellite orbiting around my world. So I'm happy to have God, but not having kind of the, the main thing. Um, and so we, we have to pay attention to that. There are, there are believers who, are, who tend to devalue this world too much and think it's way too, too unimportant. Um, but I think the majority of believers are more tempted to value this world too much. So there are believers who absolutely don't understand what the Bible says about the value of creation, the value of this world. But I think it's like an 80-20 split in my experience. Most people in congregations aren't ascetics who are denying themselves the basics of life. Most Christians value the things of this world too much. So we need to try and put that together. So we keep the value of the things of this world and love them, but we don't give them ultimate value and significance in our lives. Yeah? Is that clear enough? Does that make sense? Is that... And how, how that works, you know, whether or not you renovate your kitchen or, um, you know, you buy a new car, you, you've got to try and work out those details in the context of a bigger picture of your life. What's this saying about my life? And, you know, yeah, yeah go on. Um, this is a particularly important question, so if it's a distraction. <laughs> no, 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 correct. Um, but what, what, in your opinion, is actually the second death? Like, what does that actually mean when thinking about the first talk? The second death is, is, is hell. It is, it is um, it's the end of, you know, it, I mean, some, some, there has been a debate sometimes between Christians about whether is hell annihilation or is it eternal? You know, so there's been a, a debate um, amongst believers um, on the issue. And I wouldn't, you know, that, that is a nice um, salvation issue. It's not, you know, what, what you, where you land on that. And famously, John Stott Came, you know, talked about annihilation. That the, he thought the pictures of hell tended towards saying that it was you, you're just being wiped out. Um, but the majority of believers don't think that, and um, so I just simply think of it. It's 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 saying that actually the physical death isn't ultimate, actually, um, but it's a sp- it's spiritual death before God. It's a living spiritual death, just like in. In Ephesians 2, 1, it says we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and that becomes like a permanent thing cut off from God as the author of life. Right. Yeah. Building on the last question, you said don't get distracted. Hmm. 
Um, not that I left, but the question itself. Mm. Um, top tips? <laughs> yeah, don't get distracted. Uh, we were talking about this last night. I think it's um, this ongoing issue. I think, so uh, So several things, I can say, su- suggest several things. I mean, one is obviously on a weekend like this, we sat down, we've, we've thought about heaven, we're here, and our minds are, are on heaven, and that's great. Um, but it isn't like, we're not like camels, where you kind of just kind of load up. And then, right, okay, right now, I've thought about this weekend, right, I'll just, my, my perspective will be changed for the next month and the next year. It won't be. We know if we go back into the um, pressures of life, we don't have this time, that other things will crowd in. And so we mustn't think we're like spiritual camels where we can just load up. We need to be constantly refreshed and we need to have that daily dependence upon God and keep going back to God to have our perspective refreshed. Um, so this needs to be like a regular thing. And, and I think it's, it's good for us as individuals and as kind of community of believers to keep coming back to this, to keep refreshing this. Um, I think we, uh, community is also important, isn't it? We hold one another accountable. And diverse community is very good with that because um, we, all, we all have the tendency, you know, we're all tempted towards different idols. And one of the things, that if your community is made up of all the same people, what tends to happen is you all reaffirm one another's idols. So if you've got a bunch of wealthy people together, they'll all go, yeah, yeah, I know we shouldn't value our money too much, but they'll go... Yeah. See you at the tennis club. Yeah, see you at the tennis club. Yeah, thank you. That's a great line. Um, um, and, and if you've got people from poor backgrounds together, uh, they'll, you know, their idols will be different. It may be... Yeah, it could be, it could, could be resentment. could be all kinds of things. And, and um, you know, men will have their idols. Women have their idols. Uh, you know, I mentioned yesterday the kind of... The danger, kind of the middle class idols of education. You, know, you get middle class parents all together, all obsessed about schools, and, and and actually the great thing about having a mixed community, having singles, married, kids, older people, is that you you challenge one another. So I think that's really helpful as well. Um, and the last, I mean, the last thing connects with the, the first thing about daily dependence is kind of just constant repentance in my life, constant turning away, recognizing this this isn't something I ever, I don't kick the habit of spiritual distraction but it's a constant issue in my life I need to keep coming back and think thinking where do I need to be repenting um, yeah yeah can I add one more just on, yeah, on that I think I just have ringing in my ears for some reason little song that the kids have on CD that repeats a verse again and again God loves a generous heart because it's a heart like his own and it just keeps going around God loves a generous heart because it's a heart like his own and actually, if we are generous with the things God has given us, then it will give us a perspective of him and of heaven and of the things that we have now we can use to bless those who would come into relationship with him or who are in relationship with him. And so one of the ways we can focus on the future and not to hoard now is just to think, how much can I give? How much can I give? Can I give more? Can I give even more? Can I keep giving? And I've been struck by people who have very, very little who've been incredibly generous and um, are, are giving that to others who just have a tiny bit less than them. Um, and uh, we who have much can just keep thinking, how can I give, how can I give, how can I give? It's a great discipline. Yeah, go on. Yeah, sorry, it's back. I'm sorry, can you say that a bit loud? Or? Why is Jerusalem chosen as God's city? That's a good question. So Jerusalem isn't so much that there is a Jerusalem, God chooses it as a city, but God himself makes Jerusalem. 
as it were. So the Jerusalem that's coming down in Revelation is coming out, out of heaven. And, and the reason it's called Jerusalem is that it's picking up on, on the Old Testament um, idea of heaven, or, or the, the Old Testament idea of God's city. So in the Old Testament, God's city was this um, city, in, it was the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. That's where God's temple was, that's where God's presence was, that's where God revealed himself to his people and where they met with him. But, but that, that city in, in the land of Israel is a picture of something much bigger, which is a heavenly city. And so um, it's, it's called Jerusalem simply because it's picking up on that idea in the Old Testament of God's city. But this city isn't a place on earth. It's a place in heaven that's coming to earth. All right? Great. Thank you. Great question. Yeah, go on. Slightly off topic, but linked. Um, your, your church in... Uh, You think about how, how we've helped with those practical needs? Yeah, so I guess, yeah, and the link is that it's the opposite. So if we, if we were living for this earth rather than well, for okay. you, then we'd yeah, each, each build our own kingdom and our each, and, yeah. and the kind of white middle class world tends towards that, yeah, but yeah. in a more diverse community yeah, yeah. where there's real needs. Have you got any examples of how it's practically lived out in your, your church that might um, here? Yeah, I mean... Uh, it's a big topic about how you how you help people and do that kind of stuff. Um, probably can't say too much about it now because we, we will go off topic. But um, I mean, you have to try and develop a culture of generosity, and that happens in lots of lots of various ways. It's not simply about um, giving people things, and often giving people stuff isn't actually always the most helpful thing in our particular context. Um, there's a great book called When Helping Hurts. Uh, it's really worth reading. Really worth reading. It, it's, it's, uh, I can't remember their names, but some guys who their professors, uh, they're American uh, Christian professors working in this whole issue of aid. And they, they just make the point that actually some of what, what um, we think um, helps people practically financially actually really doesn't. It actually undermines people's ability to get work and to do it. it's, 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 it's a very good book um, so in a western context where there are you know there are benefits provided and various things um, but but there are much bigger issues to do with hospitality relationship and I've seen some of that here you know I see how you guys care for one another and are kind to one another and that's very important and I think just think the church community itself is a very powerful thing just giving people relationships, being warm and inviting and, and helping and serving one another is actually ultimately what most people want before they want a new fridge or something like that. Mm. Um, so I think, I think that's, that, that's, that's a big thing, actually, in terms of how you engage with people. Sometimes it's, sim- it's realising what are people's real, real needs. Uh, I, and I, I don't mean just, well, you know, they need the gospel. I mean, I mean just 
other other needs in their lives that are. That, but but yeah, just come back. Alex, Alex's point is a very good one. I think just giving giving stuff away, being generous, is a great way of of disciplining my greed and my kind of desire to have the world as I want it and to invest in it as well. And Jesus actually says that in Luke sixteen, giving to the poor, he says, is basically creating people who will welcome you into the heaven into your heavenly home. It's really interesting as you give away to the poor, you actually you're 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 investing in your future inheritance. Yeah. Go on, go So we, I mean, we've, we've, we've had a few discussions about this, you know, how you, how you relate the things of this world to the future and, and how we, and it's a big, big issue actually. And I, I think it's a complex issue. It's not a simple issue. And um, is the thing I've said to a few of you while I've been here, that on these questions, there's often, there's often two answers, okay? There's a theological answer and there's a pastoral answer. The theological answer will, will say this, this, and this. This is what God's word says. The pastoral answer is much more about what's going on in your life. You know, so people sometimes ask, two people can ask exactly the same question, but they're asking for different motivations and there's different issues going on in their lives. So you need to know what's going on in my heart. Am I the kind of person who's actually uh, you know, trying to build my home in this world? Uh, or am I a person who's just trying to genuinely think through how to steward everything for the glory of God? And you've got to know what's going on inside of yourself. And so the answer that you need to your question will be different because you are different and your situation is different and your temptations are different from other people's temptations. That's really helpful. Yeah, God. We don't build the city. God, God's the builder of the city. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. That's a really helpful addition to the talk. So I'll put that in. Like, I couldn't sleep. I didn't realise that God all my life has been guiding me. Yeah. The Holy Spirit has always been guiding me. I was compelled to do things. I was compelled to listen, listen to the news. I was compelled to join the security service because the security guard. I was compelled to do charity work. Compelled to help people, meet people. Compelled by my friend Abby to not compelled help. Abby helped me with the lunch in Columbia. And uh, so, yeah, so God has. I didn't realise it, I was blind out of the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the great thing, the great thing about just what we've been doing over this weekend and kind of going through the scripture is that God is, God is guiding us through the scriptures, He's guiding us through His words. So as we, as we read the words, we know exactly, we can be confident that God is speaking to us and leading us and, and helping us. We don't have to kind of think, oh, what's, what's heaven like? Oh, I don't know. How do I feel? Or, or, you know, do I need a kind of post-death experience or something? No, no, no. You just need to go into the Bible and then we get guidance, isn't it? It's great. It's great. Really good. Great.
We've got we've got five minutes, um, so we'll sing. But I just I was just really struck about this generosity thing. Um, yeah, Andy, you go and grab a seat. Um, just as the musicians come up, um, Paul, when he says goodbye to um, the church leaders in Ephesus, where he's been leading a church for a couple of years, and the final thing he says to them ties in with what we've been saying because he's looking forward. He says, "I commit you to God and to the Word of His grace, which can build you up." That's what you were talking about just there, the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So looking forward to the inheritance in the future. He says then, I have not coveted, I've not wanted anyone else's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I think so often we can think, how can I beat myself up so that I can uh, make sure that I'm uh, scrimping and saving here and struggling here because my eyes are on the future. And he says, it is more blessed, it is more happy, it is more delightful, it is more joyful, it is more wonderful, it is more profoundly looking forward to what is great to give than to receive. So with that in mind, why don't we sing and praise our God?